News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel. Your early Wednesday afternoon with Professor Christina Greer. Hello. Hi there, Harry Siegel. Hello, Professor. And as we're talking, in one hour, the Public Control Authority Board is going to meet, and uh, they will either derail or more likely certify Governor Kathy Hochul's wild Rube Goldberg scheme to basically have the state take over city land, remove existing businesses, and let Vernado, the real estate giant owned by Stephen Roth, who's given a lot of dough to Hochul, gave a lot to Andrew Cuomo, he's given a lot to Donald Trump and lots of Republicans, so he can build his own mega campus in midtown Manhattan to rival Hudson Yards, which was a huge boon for real estate giant Vornado and Stephen, Stephen M. Ross, scorecards. You need like scorecards to tell your billionaires apart. Eric Adams signed on to this deal after the uh, state committed to giving the city money from these properties we'd otherwise just be taxing ourselves uh, that would go up a little each year uh, to make up for their removal from the tax rolls. It's a very weird thing. This development project would not actually, doesn't directly involve the renovations of Penn Station, which is what it keeps getting framed as. It's uh, just that some of the money would flow into that. Okola said this is urgent because Joe Biden needs to sign off, but uh, you know the feds need to sign off, but Joe Biden isn't going anywhere. It's a uh, it's a very strange circumstance. Uh, in the meantime, speaking of Adams and Hochul, Adams is railing against bail reform again. He's now calling it bail deform, and called for a special session in Albany, which Hochul and Assembly Leader Kyle have said they won't do. This puts him Adams very much in line with Republican gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin, who's been running hard, if nowhere fast, on undoing bail reform and got his first big wave of press after he was attacked on the stump by a guy who was released without bail, which sounds wild and almost too on the nose until you know it emerges that this guy was a drunk veteran who had no idea who Zeldin was, uh, that his quote-unquote knife was a Hello Kitty keychain, um, and that the DA, whose office okayed a top charge that meant there was no chance of uh, bail being sent, uh, just happens to be a co-chair of this Zeldin campaign. So there's lots happening yet again on the law and order front. You can add to that a really sharp rise, uh, new numbers show, and crime on the trains this year that's outpaced the increase in ridership and the citywide numbers. Um, and also a very strong new editorial in the Down the Center Times Union, really worth reading, bluntly titled, Bail Isn't the Problem, and laying out, quote, how Republicans and police keep blaming bail reform for increased crime and why they're wrong. Finally, and then we're going to get to uh, we're going to get to CD twelve because I know Chrissy's got a lot to say there. We did CD ten last week, but before that, so the homeless. It's been an incredibly weird week for Eric Adams and the homeless. We've got three ticks here. First, Eric Adams says, "Hey, the shelters aren't providing 
shelter to homeless people as they're legally required to do. For the first time, it looks like since at least 2014. And he's blaming that on what he says is an influx of asylum seekers. But the city doesn't ask people about their status. The numbers are plainly guesstimates. In his own press conference, he's giving different numbers, you know, uh, people from his administration are. Uh, and we know that the, the shelter numbers have been going up since the beginning of this year. So that's item one. Item two is Adams hooking up with Norman Siegel, no relationship, former head of the New York Civil Liberties Union, to be like, hey, we're doing a whole volunteer project where ordinary New Yorkers are going to go out and like talk with homeless people and try to assist them. Followed days later by Eric Adams hooking up with the Partnership for New York, basically representing like the Midtown business community and the big players there to be like, we're working with them and they can go into places we can't. He wasn't specific, but maybe this means the privately owned public spaces that some of y'all may remember from Occupy Wall Street and Zuccotti and that whole set of fights and talk to homeless people there, all of which begs the question of uh, what's happening with the billions of dollars the city is already spending. Why are we doing like different sorts of volunteer efforts and business subsidized efforts and what those are going to accomplish? It's really not clear to me, and it is clear that the, the number of uh, people seeking shelter and the number of street homeless people have been going way up. So with all that as backdrop, let's talk about CD12, Congressional District 12, New York 12. Uh, this is the district that uh, Carolyn Maloney is the nominal incumbent in, that Gerald Nadler entered as it got redrawn. And covered, you know, his old stronghold on the Upper West Side. Maloney was the Upper East Side. Now they're in conflict. And our guy, Siraj Patel, has run twice against Maloney previously and is uh, really going at her hard right now. Chrissy, how, how are you seeing that race? Oh, and a special shout out to our friend, Brigid Bergen, a Gothamist in uh, NYC, for breaking the news, which may be very relevant to this race in New York 12 and maybe also New York 10. But because our state lawmakers are collectively not the most impressive people, and because judges ended up splitting the primary into two, so we had the June one and the August one coming up, early voting is almost upon us, we have an accidental experiment in having an open primary. And if you're a Republican or an independent, straight up through election day, you can sign an affidavit and go and vote in the Democratic primary if you want to, which could really change the math and what's looking to be very low turnout races. So that's, that's full a backdrop. Okay. So I have, I have a lot of thoughts, you know, this. So one, shout out to Bridget Bergen, who's always on the cusp of keeping us well-informed. Two, shout out to Ben Max, who is our Flintstones Jetsons counterpart, because he'll be interviewing Suraj Patel this week. Uh, and I'm sure that they'll have an interesting conversation about the 12th district. Um, so, you know, Harry, I don't like this last minute change to an open primary system, even though, you know, <laughs> you, you've joked before, there are going to be more candidates than voters in this particular race. But, you know, New York has a closed primary system. So for our listeners, you know, you all are highly educated. But for those of you who might just be tuning in, a closed primary is you have to be registered as a Democrat to participate in a Democratic primary. What Harry just explained is that we have this new thing for the August race, which is not going to be in effect for the November race, to my knowledge, where in the August race, up until the day before, you can sign this affidavit and you can switch over. And so for District 10 and District 12, which will probably be uh, sort of the most sought after, you know, possibly um, the most 
highly participatory districts, you could have independents or even Republicans participating in this Democratic primary. I don't like that, Harry, in a closed primary system because in Georgia, many, many moons ago, I don't know if you remember Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney, they had open primaries. And what Republicans did was they flooded the primary and voted against this upstart opponent of hers who did not have the qualifications or the experience, and that woman ended up winning the primary. Now, granted, this is fair and square. These are free and fair elections. But it was a way for an opposing party to meddle in elections to try and undermine uh, a, a real candidate. So I don't think that's going to happen in the 10th and the 12th, but I do think that it'll further confuse voters as to whether or not they can participate. And then it'll make e- November 8th even more confusing. That being said, the 12th, we've got Nadler, Maloney, and Patel. As basically, I'm sure there's some other stragglers on the, the ballot, but those are sort of the top three. And so in some ways, we've got this third times the charm showdown between Patel and Maloney. And then because of redrawing, we've got Nadler in the mix. And so we've got East Side and West Side combined, both highly participatory districts. You've got uh, Nadler and Maloney as these septuagenarians and Patel, who's, you know, part of this Obama wave of young people who worked for Obama. And it's like, I worked for him for X number of years, and now I want to run for office. So I do think that Patel being in the race hurts Maloney more than anything else. And this is why if I were a betting woman, I would say that this bodes well for Nadler on August 23rd, because there are a lot of people who just don't like Maloney uh, in her governance or her style or the fact that she's an anti-vaxxer or made her, you know, I I heard a story that she made her interns wear pantyhose, like just some some old antiquated nonsense that um, I think Patel voters would like, or people who honestly, and let's just put it on the table, people who can't find themselves uh, voting for a woman, right? We hear this quite a bit. I don't like her. What don't you like about her? It's like, I don't know. I just don't like her. It's not like I don't like female candidates. I just don't like her. And it's like, okay, well, you can't give me a reason why. So here we are. So we know that you add in all of those folks, those who just, who are from her district, uh, the the former district when she ran against Patel, uh, who just wanted someone new. And so they voted for Patel or they were voting against Maloney, which is the fundamental difference that I don't know if Patel fundamentally understands. People voting for Patel these past two election cycles just because they voted for Patel, and this is, you know, when Bill Thompson had to find this out the hard way when he ran against Bloomberg, just because you got the votes doesn't mean people are voting for you. They may be voting against your opponent to send your opponent a message. Whether they believe your opponent's going to win or lose, it doesn't matter. They want to send a message. We saw this with Cuomo, right? Each time folks ran against Cuomo, a third of the Democratic primary um, populace voted against Cuomo. Were they necessarily voting for Cynthia Nixon <laughs> from Sex and the City? I don't know. Some people may have thought that she was this brilliant, progressive mind. Other folks wanted to send Cuomo a message. And I think that's a big difference. And so if I had to make a call today, I think it does bode well for Nadler. Because essentially Nadler is tacitly making the argument, Patel doesn't have different ideas than I am. He's just younger. And does that matter when I'm coming in with seniority? You saw how I've behaved on these committees, as head of these committees. Hopefully Democrats will keep the majority. Uh, And if that's the case, New Yorkers would want someone who's senior in in that seat and not someone who's going to come in as a freshman. And unless you're seen as a star, you're not going to get the best committee assignments. You're going to be on, you know, what ag- not even agriculture, postage, US- United States Postal Service or some some nonsense that, you know, Patel would likely get. And so I think that that type of argument for that particular district, if we're talking about other places in New York, it would be different. But we're talking about the east side and the west side and all the 
coded language that I'm using right now about (laughs) someone who lived on the Upper West Side for 20 years. I know that voter. I know how participatory that voter is. I know what type of elected that voter sort of is accustomed to and the type of service that they're accustomed to. I was accustomed to it as well, right? If I waited in line for more than three minutes, I was apoplectic and ready literally to call my congressman. So that being said, I think that Patel has a hard road ahead of him because Nadler and Maloney aren't acquiescing to this argument that he's got the same ideas, he's just 30 years younger. It's wild that the way this redistricting worked with the special master, even putting Patel aside, and my view is I don't see how Patel can win. I think he could definitely, having failed to do so head-to-head twice, help knock out Maloney. Mm-hmm. potentially, right? They, 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 they've had these swear-offs previously. Patel's strength was actually in, 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 in Queens, largely, and not in Manhattan, but he's known now on the east side, which is Maloney's stronghold. But however this plays out, New York is going to lose at least one senior, powerful chairperson of significant committees in Congress as, as, as Maloney and Nadler go head-to-head here. And that's a damaging and, 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 and pretty uncommon. You know, you, you don't have committee chairs running directly against each other as a thing. And I keep going back to, we came 87 votes, uh, excuse me, 87 people away from not losing a congressional district at all. And Bill de Blasio is a clown. He put real effort into getting as many people counted as he possibly could. And partly for that reason, Andrew Cuomo paid no mind at all to the uh, census or those efforts. People thought we might lose two seats. We almost didn't lose one. And that would have ended the need for this whole redistricting. It could have been a, there's a whole alternate uh, uh, path here, which fortunately for us, having racists to talk about didn't happen, but I don't think it's so good for New Yorkers. Right. Well, I mean, anytime you put two very senior people head to head, Right. We're, we're going to lose institutional knowledge. We're going to lose some power in Washington, D.C. Um, and I do think that there is something to be said about Democrats needing to pass the baton. I've said it before. Right. Joe Biden, soon to be an octogenarian, you know, Nancy Pelosi, Maxine Waters, octogenarians, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton. You know, you think of a lot of a lot of the leadership, uh, people who have served the party and this country dutifully. But. We have to have a succession plan. I'm definitely not saying Suraj Patel is it. Um, I do have issues with kind of these Obama upstarts. And, you know, someone on Twitter was like, you know, they always say that about Asian candidates. And I'm like, I'm not saying that about Asian candidates. I'm saying that about the Obama candidates. I'm saying that about these, <laughs> these cats who worked in the Obama administration or on the campaign for 20 minutes and then are just like, I want to run and take out someone who's been here serving for 35 years. That's what I'm saying. It has nothing to do with race and ethnicity or gender, actually. So I think the larger concern, though, is in this particular moment in Washington, D.C., there is a necessity as a New Yorker, I do want someone with seniority. But I also want Jerry Nadler and Carolyn Maloney to really think about exiting. Like, let's not RBG ourselves, right? Like, no disrespect, but we have to make sure that, you know, your personal desire to wear the pin on your lapel and have power in Washington, D.C. doesn't further hurt the party and the, and the country and your New York district in the long run. So if Jerry Nadler, I think, you know, or Carolyn Maloney was like, listen, like, Pull a Charlie Rangel. I want to leave on a good note. Give me this last election. 
and I'm out. And that's what he did. And that's how he was able to win 2014. I mean, he was just like, listen, I want to leave with the first black president. I served di- diligently for 44 years. Give me two two more, make it even 46, and I'm out of here. Did he have a succession plan? No, asked Keith Wright, right? But he did leave when he said he was supposed to, and that did help voters feel better about voting for him, knowing that he was actually going to, to exit stage left. So I feel like if Nadler was like, listen... Uh, it's been great. You know, I've had some health challenges and uh, I love this country. I love this this state. I love my district. But I'm out of here after 2022, after you reelect me. Then I think that especially for his his loyal voters on the Upper West Side, I think that that could really resonate with folks. And that would set us up for a real succession plan and an interesting race in a presidential year when we could actually have people paying attention. And maybe we'd be back on the June cycle and not some rando August when you and I both talked about last week. We're not even going to be here. right? We've got to make a plan to participate because we're going to be one of the 10 voters who's actually interested in, in turning out. Chrissy, I got a big, deep question for you here. So we're talking about the olds, respectfully, secession, and all these parts. And bringing this back to Adams for a minute. Adams is back on his uh, bail reform, deform thing. He's seeing some polling indicating that's the case. I'm seeing the possibility of an American carnage part two election coming up where where people are running very directly against New York City. So Lee Zeldin is doing his best mm-hmm. to run against Al Bragg rather than Kathy Hochul. I could see Trump saying, look what's happened to these places, these shitholes. If there's, you know, just, just numbers are up, bad stories are out. And I can also see Nancy Pelosi calling it in at some point and Akeem Jeffries potentially ascending. But that seems doubly complicated if we suddenly have a Senate majority or minority leader and a House speaker or minority leader who are both from New York on a moment when politics get nationalized again around New York. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm just trying to think about how all of this can play out. And, and this is relevant here and, and with, with locals, and it would be cool to have Hakeem and Chuck doing that. At the same time, I, I can see all of, all, all of this spinning uh, spinning in some dangerous directions. Uh, obviously, we'll have a better sense when we see where this, um, after this November, and we see where that leaves the Democratic Party. But Right. Well, I mean, I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again, because I want it to be on the record and clear as day. Chuck Schumer's not built for this moment. Hasn't been, and... You know, I don't care that he's from New York and he is my senator. And yes, I have voted for him. But like, this is not his moment. He's not that cat. Like, I don't know who he is, but it ain't him. Um, I do think that it would be, the optics aren't great that we have two New Yorkers. Let's just say the Democrats hold the majority and Hakeem Jeffries somehow ascends. That is assuming that Nancy Pelosi gives it up. That is also assuming that, you know, um, this is, their colleagues vote for them. Um, Nancy Pelosi knows how to count votes. I mean, listen, she helped get the ACA passed. So, like, she knows who's in her caucus at all times. And I think that there are some people who are clamoring for a younger type of representation. Uh, But I think that she, she, if she's ready to give it up, fine. If she's not, she's not. You know, Biden says he's the bridge. Pelosi's talked about this before. But, like, people have this power. They they don't 
tend to step away. We've never seen people give it up easily. We just haven't. It's just not what people do when they get power. And Nancy Pelosi is from the D'Alessandro family, from Baltimore, Maryland. She knows politics. She's lived it, breathed it her entire life. Her brother Tommy, her father Thomas. Like, this is this is who she is. And I'm not, that's not a diss. It's just, that's in her, literally in her DNA. So it remains to be seen as to whether or not if the Democrats, A, hold the majority, and B, whether or not she'd give it up. Like, I mean, her colleagues could vote for her, but, you know, she also has a lot of power and, and also knows probably where a lot of skeletons are. So we'll see how that shakes out. Um, with, you know, this kind of double New York situation, I, I do think that, you know, there there are a lot of Democrats across the country who don't necessarily, you know, love New Yorkers. It's the same upstate-downstate debate we always have. What I do find really interesting, not surprising, because as my grandmother said, you should only be surprised when you're surprised, is that... The Willie Hortonization of this country that has become so commonplace. And so for our listeners who may not remember the Willie Horton ad, uh, that was an ad that George H.W. Bush played when he was running against uh, Dukakis about Willie Horton, who was a, a murderer, or rapist. I can't remember which one, but he was out on parole and ended up raping a woman uh, while he was on parole. Yeah, uh, he's doing a life on, sentence, is doing rather, excuse me, a life sentence for murder. Uh, he's in okay. Maryland now. Maryland now. Okay, so at the time he was on parole, uh, Dukakis was uh, somehow involved because it was the state of Massachusetts and essentially made it, you know, translation, these wild Negroes will come and rape your white wives if he becomes mm-hmm. president. That's like, that's the subtext of this ad. We teach this ad in parties and elections. I teach this ad in campaigns and elections um, in all different classes because at the time it was seen as egregious and so just racially charged and powerful and explicit, and we had never seen anything like it before. And now, fast forward 30 years, it's just a commonplace ad. Lee Zeldin's talking about Al Bragg, something that he is not in power and cannot control. Like, he can't fire Al Bragg on day one. No one's, besides Errol Lewis, no one's calling him out on his lies. Like, that's just not possible. But he's running against, essentially, this black man is making Manhattan, a.k.a. New York City, a.k.a. New York State, unsafe, and you're going to have more Blacks and Latinos running around raping wives and, and daughters. Like, that's the subtext of the Lee Zeldin, which is mm-hmm. so disgusting mm-hmm. in the 21st century. Chrissy, as you were saying, some of this has gone, what's that thing above the subtext? Has gone from subtext to text. Right. So 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 the Willie Horton ad w- w- was Lee Atwater, um, and it was, was brutal and pretty uh, line-crossing. Clearly. And oh, it was furlough, not parole. That's right. Mm-hmm, sorry, mm-hmm. sorry, sorry, sorry. And, and and that resonated. Um, this also happened, I believe, later in the campaign, if memory serves, of one of the debates, Dukakis gets asked, pretty intense question. Um, what if some criminal raped and murdered your wife? Mm-hmm. Would you still oppose the death penalty? Right. And, you know, there were gas in the room. And Dukakis, who's in his groove, you know, and you're prepped as hell for these debates, you know, thinking about all these things at once, he just answers right away. And it's not what he says, it's how he says it. He says, no, I don't. I think, you know, I've been opposed to the death penalty all my life. Mm-hmm. And what he didn't do was do the breath beforehand and say, of course, I would want to see that person punished right. and personalize it and then say, but, but I, but I have however, this principle. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that that was a, 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 a related moment also on the rape and sexual assault front and, and trying to make politics and personalize those. But I think really hurt him 
in that campaign. Um, and P.S. Harry, just P.S. If people are interested in seeing some of these older ads, good ones and bad ones, uh, go to thelivingroomcandidate.org. That's what I, I use in my classes, and my students love it. They start off with with ads from um, 1956 with mm-hmm. uh, Dwight Eisenhower, and you can see transference of black and white ads to color, ads that had no women, right? And then all of a sudden they're women in families, ads that had no people of color, and we've gotten a lot more diverse. These are ads where people used to smoke cigarettes while talking about the candidate. And the candidate himself was smoking <laughs> cigarettes. So just the evolution of ads, the livingroomcandidate.org excuse me, livingroomcandidate.org is a fantastic resource. You can also see the maps of uh, which states voted democratically or Republican, uh, the whole number, the percent, and then the number of electoral college votes. It's a fantastic resource if you're interested in presidential elections. Great place to rabbit hole. And you see not only the evolution, but also what hasn't changed at all, Mm. you know, in ways that are very helpful when you're watching Nixon ads. And like, if if you just squint slightly or aren't paying attention to the Trump ads, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. Well, I mean, Bill Clinton has an ad where he says, make America great again. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, then you look at some of his policies for the eight years, it's like, hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Close so, note. Yeah, Close note. I just want to bring it back uh, to, to the world of acid, amnesty, and abortion mm. and ask what in the hell is going on with this very public Twitter beef between state senator and former <laughs> FAQ guest, hopefully future FAQ guest as well, Jessica Ramos, and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, where, where Ramos is just airing her out. You're not talking to people in the community. You haven't been seen here. What gives? And then all these other DSA people, Ramos is a member of the Working Families Party, but not the DSA. They're overlapping left-wing circles. You know, but like public officials are like, hey, cool off, pipe down, try and ease her off. And she she seems to be doubling down on just saying, this lady is not present and I'm mad about it. And I can't quite tell tactically why she's mad. Uh, right. You're not her, but, but I'd love to, you know, and can't speak for her, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I think Errol said it best, which is like, this is a classic case of clearly back-channeling uh, communication has failed, right? And so this is a strategy that Ramos is clearly employing, which is like, now we got beef in the streets. What makes me sad is this. We're not so advanced in as far as uh, our political descriptive and substantive representation, but definitely descriptive representation, where we have so many female candidates or so many Latina candidates where we can be just as trifling and ridiculous as all these white male candidates. We still, by and large, have a disproportionate number of white male uh, representatives throughout the country and especially in New York even represented. So the fact that we have like two Latina women, so not just two women, but two Latina women beefing in the streets doesn't make me feel great. for a host of demographic reasons. But it's interesting because it's actually not beef in the streets because AOC has not responded. So this is the old Mark Twain piece where it's just like, you know, if you see a crazy person ranting in the street, like don't don't respond because passersby will think that you're both crazy, right? That's, I'm paraphrasing Mark Twain, obviously. But I think what's really interesting is the silence of AOC because right now it's just turning into a one-sided Ramos double down and double down. And folks chiming in saying like, yeah, I agree. She's not around. She's, you know, getting all this attention. Um, and we don't feel like she's representing what we need her to, to do. Uh, but it's been interesting to follow the discourse and the dialogue because obviously a lot of detractors are saying, are you all just salty because you aren't getting enough attention? Are you all salty because she's not 
giving you attention. Like, you know, people posting pictures. It's like, here she is with you at this event. Here she is with, you know, this detractor at that event. So I wish that it wouldn't become public because we know that so many people are trying to tear down female candidates, especially female candidates of color, uh, based on nothing. But clearly we've reached an impasse where um, I'm always wondering, like, when you play this out, when I have beef with someone, it's like, I like to play it out to the hill, right? So it's like, what does it look like at the end? Could we ever work together, right? Because you know I have beef with some folks where I, I don't mess with them. And it's like, guess what? That bridge is burnt <laughs> and I'll swim. Like, I, I don't want the bridge. I don't need the bridge. But this is one of those things where it's like, actually, you guys do need a bridge. Because it's not like you're talking to someone who's in a different district. You're talking to someone who your districts overlap. And you all actually will meet again. You know, and as Joan Rivers says, the same people you meet going up, you meet going down. So, like, they are actually linked. Not just because they're Latina female electeds. Like, they actually overlap in constituencies. So it, my first inclination is to kind of be sad about it, to be quite honest. And then my second inclination is, it's like, Jessica, I need you to talk to some folks because AOC is not responding to this beef. So you're doubling down on beef with someone that's actually not engaging with you. And so that's the way I feel about my Twitter. You know, when people sort of start talking smack on Twitter, it's like, hey, guess what? Either you're muted, you're blocked, or I'm just looking at you because it's like, I, I employed the, the response of, I don't have beef with people who I don't feel are equal to me. And that, to me, is what AOC is doing, where it's like, she's not responding, right? Like, when students send me crazy emails, and it's like, or colleagues, or, you know, whomever, miscellaneous journalists, it's like, I don't respond, because we're not equal. So you get silence. And so that's the piece, that, but it's, I'm sure it's more enraging to the person who's trying to engage. And so I'm sure Jessica Ramos is getting more and more frustrated because it's like, I'm calling you out for not being engaged and you're still not engaging. But if I were AOC, I'm thinking, well, I don't engage with people who have beef in the streets. I'm a congresswoman. Like, this is beneath me, right? And what good does it do to have two Latinas scrapping in the streets who are both elected officials with a shared constituency? So... I'm sad about it. I really do hope that they can resolve it because as we saw with de Blasio and Cuomo, the only people who suffer are the, are the constituents. The I ball mean, gets dropped. Policy gets overlooked. People are distracted. They're sort of, everyone's in their little corners. And the only people who lose out are the citizens. It's interesting because from a legislator's perspective, and these are two legislators, both with significant public personas and social media followings, AOC, obviously a much larger one, right? Like, like, like going at it in the tweets, that is the streets, right? Because what lawmakers generally do is you're dealing with the stuff behind closed doors and you can hide a little behind the will of the caucus. And, you know, we're negotiating about things and so on. So I, I don't, I'm, I, I, I hear what you're saying and I don't think this is healthy. Simultaneously, I do think there's something refreshing about people talking about things as they're seeing them. And I must say with AOC and her, her presence in the district and around New York, like this is one of those old gawker things and being something everyone knows, but nobody had been saying. And I'm interested what happens now that that seal is cracked. I'm actually hopeful it makes, uh, it, it, it makes AOC, you know, invest some time in her district and in constituent services and in dealing with, with the other locals. But uh, we will see. Has she responded, though? 
No, no. And as you said, why would she? It's also like if you're in a different race or you're up 20 points in the polls and somebody says something, you don't respond until you have to. And so so Ramos cracked the seal by going public with this. But like uh, it did not reach the threshold where, where AOC has to um, has to speak. And she's obviously very strategic and very smart about who she communicates with and how. And I'm obviously very curious what, what what conversations are now happening at the leader level, at the staff level, behind closed doors about this. Uh, but publicly, you know, she hasn't said a thing. Right. Well, I hope it gets resolved because I, I do think that the people who are represented by both of them deserve yes. folks who were, you know, obviously visiting the district. Going to Albany is not the same as going to Washington, D.C. Let's be clear. AOC has a national profile. Jessica Ramos does not. Um, and the only people who ultimately suffer are the constituents. But I do hope that the people surrounding Jessica Ramos, especially because she has a bright career, I'm going to still use present tense, not past, um, a bright career in front of her, um, that they sort of pull her coattail for a second. Because there are different ways that you can do it. And maybe, maybe it's, listen, I don't know the behind the scenes. Maybe it's reached a boiling point where she's like, I don't care if this sort of, changes people's perceptions of me and, and possibly uh, serves as a roadblock for future ambitions, of which we know there are there are some. Um, but let me just leave it at this. It's not my style. And so just because it's not my style doesn't mean that it, 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 it can't, we can't have other styles, but I prefer to move in a different, <laughs> in a different shadow uh, when I need to get things done. And just for the record and to close here, uh, I did reach out to Ramos, who's been on the pod before, and asked her if she wanted to come on to talk about any of this. She uh, did not respond, which, frankly, I think is sensible, right? Like, like going public is one thing. Like tweeting in discrete sentences and all that is different from, uh, you know, let me go and talk to the press about this. I'm hoping we'll have her on again at whatever point to talk about what's happening in Albany, you know, her legislative agenda and so on. Um, but. Because at the end of the day, you want to get, you want to get back to being known for policy, not for petty politics and beef, right? There's enough policy that she and her colleagues have, have ushered through in these past few years where it's like, that to me is, and maybe I'm just old fashioned, right? I have to recognize I'm, I'm quickly entering the older version of New York City politics and New York State politics. But it's like, you know, when you hear about celebrities or whatever, it's like, now I'm getting to know you for all the things that like, this isn't what I'm supposed to know you for. Like, I want, I want to know you for the policies in Albany, not for Twitter beef. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, artists, and critics. Online at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at New York University and recorded this week from the borough of Brooklyn. Adam Kamara mixed and edited this week's episode. And we hope you are having a great week. Thanks for listening. Be kind, be safe, be cool in this heat. And we'll see you next week. So let's leave it there. We're not even going to do our closing credits. Adam, Kamara, uh, sound engineer extraordinaire. If you could just get us the rights to uh, push a tease, spicy fish dish.
That would be ideal for this episode in which he takes shots at McDonald's after writing, I'm loving it. But up. Oh, wait. Do we need to trademark that? It's eight notes. But It's ours now. No, it's only five notes. I can say it. I'm lo- Wait, wait. Are you sure you know the law on this? I thought it was eight notes and then you had to pay for it. Ah. But up. Yeah, wait. Yeah, yeah. Do it again. <laughs> just make sure you do I'm it. Yeah, it's just five notes. We don't have to pay for it. And if we do, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's what you're getting. You're not getting money. You're getting a, a Chrissy Greer. I'm sorry. So we're going to leave that as the teaser, but we're soon going to be uh, tied to possibly more responsible people who may not let us sample things freely. So, uh, Adam, if you could just put like a full good album at the end of this, like something from the 80s, that would be awesome. Okay. Are we still, is this still part of the show? No, no, no. You you need to cut off somewhere before there. Sorry. I was trying, <laughs> but like, you, you can work out the cutoff point. All right.